The following is a message from Westminster Seminary, California, by our president, Dr. W. Robert Godfrey. For more information about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at westcal.edu or call at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call 760-480-8474. Let us pray together. O Lord, we come to you this morning as the God who is great and glorious lifted up. We come to you as the God who deigns to look upon the lowly, the weak, to look upon sinners who look to you in hope and in faith because of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray, O Lord, that uh, this convocation might be a time that honors you, that praises you, that acknowledges you, that looks into your word as the source of our truth and our hope. And we pray, O Lord, that your Holy Spirit will be present to bless us, to encourage us, and to further prepare us for this semester of study. Uh, We want this to be a time, O Lord, in which you are honored, Uh, not only this hour, but this semester, Uh, a time in which your word becomes more precious to us and more clear in our thoughts and in our minds, more powerful in our lives. And so be with us and bless us, O Lord, for we pray through Jesus Christ, our only Savior. Amen. We gather this morning as a believing community, and we express that faith together by using the Apostles' Creed. You can find that on page 845 in the back of the Red Trinity Hymnal. This is a creed that the church has confessed through the centuries It does indeed remind us that we are part of the Holy Catholic Church, Christ's universal church spread around the world world and through the centuries. And so let us all say, in faith, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, died, and was buried, he descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. God's pure word to us today is Psalm 12. Psalm 12, hear the word of the Lord. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. 
You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. This is the word of God. Well, it's good to have you here today to begin this uh, semester. Some of you have already begun uh, with class, uh, but the faculty has felt that it is a good idea that we begin with a special convocation at the beginning of the school year, uh, a time to mark uh, this new beginning, a time to uh, try to express our sense of the importance of this beginning. That's why the faculty gets all gussied up for the occasion. Um, I personally have tried to convince them that they ought to teach every day uh, dressed like this, but they've been uh, strangely resistant uh, to this perfectly reasonable suggestion. Uh, but this is a way in which we say uh, what we're doing here together is important. Uh, and uh, the most important thing about what we do here together is to look into the Word of God. And so at the beginning of each year at this time of convocation, I have tried to uh, preach some section of Scripture that draws our attention to the Word of God, to the importance of the Word of God. Uh, because I know you have come here to study that Word. And in one way or another, everything we do here at the seminary uh, revolves around the Word of God. Some of you already had Hebrew this morning, uh, beginning to study a biblical language so that you might draw closer to the Word of God. Uh, it might not immediately strike you that that is the case. There will be moments, uh, especially late at night before examinations, uh, when the study of Hebrew may begin uh, to not seem quite as useful as you would have thought. Uh, but it is. It's important. We see the importance that we might be able to read the Word of God in the original languages so we might draw nearer to it. You'll take courses in the interpretation of the Scripture so that you'll be able to draw closer to the Word of God. You'll take courses in which there'll be discussions of biblical theology, how the Lord in His Word has unfolded the truth about Himself through redemptive history. You'll take courses in systematic theology that will look at the systematic connections between various doctrines in the Word of God. Uh, you'll take practical theology in which you'll be looking at questions, how do we apply the Word of God today? faithfully, responsibly. And then you'll be able to study the queen of the theological disciplines, history, uh, where you'll be able to see the history of the church's efforts to understand that word of God and to apply it in their times. One of the great sanctifying effects of church history is to see how often the church got things wrong, uh, to lead us to be humble in what we're doing and redouble our efforts to to try to bring every thought captive to the Word of God, to judge every thought according to the Word of God, to have seen how many in the history of the church have deviated from that Word, and then to try to use all of the spiritual and intellectual power we have to be sure that we're seeking to be guided by the Word of God. And we do that not simply because it's part of our tradition, but we do that because we believe God himself in his Word tells us about the importance of his word. Uh, it is God who speaks on this subject. It is God who directs us to his word. It is God who has said that his word is critical for us, that it will be our life. 
And so this morning we look at this declaration about the word as we find it in Psalm uh, 12, where in verse 6 we read, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. The Lord is saying of his word that his word is pure, that it is purified like the purest silver one can imagine where all the infirmity has been, all the, uh, all the uh, impurities have been burned out. And God says to us, my word is pure like the purest silver and is to be your life. And that's what we want to reflect on a little bit uh, today, how the Lord is saying that uh, here in this text and how this can help guide and direct our approach to our study uh, in this coming uh, year. Because there are voices in our world that would say to you, you're going to be wasting a lot of time and money here. Why don't you just go out and serve the Lord? Don't you know the gospel? Don't you already know something about the Bible? You know enough for what a dark, needy world is all about. Just go out and do it. There are all sorts of people who have rushed out to serve the Lord. Many of them are doing many good things. But why is it so important then that you be here to study the word with the kind of care that you're going to be asked to study it? Other people will say, well, it's a good thing to go to seminary, but, you know, all this time given to biblical languages and to the history of theology and the history of the church, that's not really important. What you need to learn is how to be a good leader. What you need to do is learn is how to be a good administrator, how to run the church. That's what churches really need. And we are committed to the uh, old-fashioned proposition, but biblical proposition, that what churches need is preachers of the word, ministers of the word. This is not to say that churches may not need some leadership and some administration. Of course they do. But administration and leadership is not the life of the church. The word of God is the life of the church. We believe here that the preaching of the word is a means of grace. That means it's an appointed way by which God builds up his people in the faith. Not to hear the word of God is to be weakened, is to be starved. And I think as a historian I can make a pretty good case that part of the problem with the American churches today is that people are starving in those churches because they are not hearing the word of God. They're not being fed by the word of God. And I want to encourage you today that the time and effort and money you're going to spend in this coming year is crucial for your sake, for your spiritual life, but even more crucial for the church of Jesus Christ, for the people with whom you'll be fellowshipping, teaching, to whom you'll be preaching. And I think God is saying that here in Psalm 12. He says it in a variety of ways in different places. But here again, we see the truth that uh, John Calvin expressed when he said, no one can be a minister who is not a student of the word. And that does not mean you'll be a student of the word for three years. And then you'll know it all. Uh, You know it all in the first year. Uh, and, and then gradually, we hope you come to recognize there are some things you don't know and will take a lifetime to learn. Because part of the function of seminary is to give you the tools you need, the skills you need, the foundation you need, 
to be a student for life, to be a student of God's word for life, to be one who's constantly growing and deepening in the word. I remember vividly once when uh, uh, Dr. Bergsma, our emeritus professor of practical theology, was uh, speaking in chapel, and a student rushed up to him after chapel and said, that was a wonderful message, Dr. Bergsma. How long did it take you to write that? Dr. Bergsma, without missing a beat, said 35 years. And, and that was the truth. Uh, knowing the word of God is cumulative. We want to keep growing in our knowledge of the word of God. And that's what Psalm 12 calls us to. It calls us to know that God's word is pure in its form, its function, and its foundation. I had a Welsh preaching professor, not Howell Jones, but he always insisted that we have alliterative points. I've never quite gotten over it. The word of God is pure in its form, in its function, and in its foundation. Uh, First of all, in its form. That's perhaps the clearest and most obvious teaching here in this text. The words of the Lord are pure words. We are committed as a seminary to the purity of the word of God. We are committed as a seminary that God's scriptures are true, reliable. One of the interesting things to study in the history of the church is how the church has tried to articulate that truth and maintain that truth. One would think it's enough to say that the Bible is true. Church has always said that. But then along come people who say, well, you know, that word true, that has a variety of meanings. It's true in some ways, certainly. And so then the church at the time of the Reformation said the word is infallible. It is unfailing. It is completely reliable. And then people came along and said, well, yeah, it's true and it's infallible, but that doesn't mean there aren't errors in it. And so the church has had to say the word of God is true and the word of God is infallible and the word of God is inerrant. And that's where we stand as a faculty at this institution. That's where we hope all of you will stand with us as students. The word of God is pure. It does not contain errors as it comes from the hand of God. He has given us pure words. And the contrast in this psalm is intriguing on that point. Whereas God's word is pure, true, and reliable in every particular, we live in a world that is full of lies and flatterers and deceit. That's the contrast that Psalm 12 wants to make. The contrast between the words of men who oppose God and the word of God, which is true. And that's the world in which we live. This psalm, perhaps you thought as we read it, is a little bit pessimistic. Um, And perhaps it is indeed a little hyperbolic in its pessimism. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. A little later the psalmist says that there are the needy who groan for help from God, so it's not that there aren't any godly left. But he's saying, as I look around, it seems to me I am in a world filled with lies. I am in a world where people speak things that are not true. Sometimes they know they are not true. There's an intention to deceive. There's an intention to flatter, this psalm says. And where can we find truth in such a world? 
Where can we find truth in such a world? And the function of this psalm is to say it's in the word of God that we can find truth. It's in the scriptures that we can find truth. It's the scriptures who, who, which stand as the, the standard by which all truth must be measured. Many of us were privileged to hear as Sam Solomon speaking this summer at the seminary, a convert from Islam to Christianity, and uh, spoke so powerfully of coming to the truth as it is in Jesus Christ, coming to the truth by reading the New Testament, uh, coming to recognize uh, the lies with which he had been educated. Uh, one of the impressive things about hearing him is that uh, uh, he, like uh, many of his former faith, was able to recite uh, the Koran uh, at will from memory in Arabic. When you're studying your Hebrew uh, vocabulary, uh, don't complain. Um, uh, but he came to realize that what he had been taught was not the truth. And we are here to say that truth is to be found in the scriptures that God has given us. Uh, that's the truth by which we are to measure all things. And the form of that word, that commitment to the inerrancy of Scripture is critical because when we begin to erode the Scriptures, we become the ultimate judges of truth rather than God being the ultimate judge of truth. And uh, even in circles that I hear described as Bible-believing, I hear people saying of things said in the Scripture, well, I can't believe that. My God isn't like that. And my inclination is to say, that's right, your God isn't like that because you no longer have a biblical God. You've made up a God for yourself who says the things you want to hear. The temptation, you see, to flatter ourselves. And that's why the word is so critical to us. And that's why the form of the word is so important to us. The words of the word carrying the meaning of God carry the truth of God, carry the revelation of God. That's why we give such careful attention to the words of God. We might note, for example, in verse 1, the prayer of the psalmist, David, is save, O Lord. Come and help, O Lord. Come and rescue, O Lord. And when we read that in Hebrew, we see that there's a related word down in verse 5 where God promises, I will place him in the safety for which he longs. Save and safety are related words there. You may not notice that in English. You might have noticed it, but you might not. But in Hebrew, it's really quite clear. These are related words. The psalmist prays that the Lord would save, and the Lord declares, I will arise and save. I will arise and put you in safety. God hears his people. He answers their prayer. He comes to their need. And the very words of Scripture carry that meaning for us. A meaning that is clearer in Hebrew than often in our English translations. There's a value, you see, to drawing near to the Word of God, as close as we can get, to understand what God is saying to us, to encourage us. Notice the contrast in the words between verse 4, where the flatterers are those who say... With our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us? To down in the middle of verse 5, now I will arise, says the Lord. 
I will, take, I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The contrast between what the world says and what the Lord says, between the words of the world and the words of the Lord, that's the contrast that this psalm wants us to think about. The world says one thing, but God says another. And, and this psalm highlights for us the arrogance of the world. Our words are master of the world. And God says, no, it is my word that is the master of the world. I'm the one who is enthroned in heaven. And, and so the word of God is, is to be a delight to us that we might draw near with utter confidence that we hear the word of God in this book that he speaks to us, that his word is true in its form and that the very words in which he expresses himself are full of meaning for us that we might know his truth. And so if the form of the word is pure, so is the function of the word. And the function of the word, as highlighted in this psalm, is that God is a promise keeper. The word is true in its form, and the truth of that form leads us to the truth of its function. That is, that we might know God keeps his promises to his people. Well, that's obvious, isn't it? You don't need to come to seminary and pay tuition to learn that. But what I hope you'll learn while you're here is that that ultimately is one of the most difficult things for the people of God to really believe. It's one of the most difficult things for us to believe. That God really does keep his promises. It was difficult for David to believe. Do you see that? Save, O God, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. This is what some wags have called an Elijah complex. I alone am left. Somewhat anachronistically to call it an Elijah complex here. But this is the way the faithful, the godly sometimes feel. I bet some of you have had that feeling once in a while. Oh Lord, it seems to me I'm just surrounded by unbelief or I'm just surrounded by error. I'm surrounded by the hard-hearted who don't care about God. And when it seems that the ungodly flourish and the godly suffer, it's hard to believe that God is a promise keeper. The evidence seems often against it. And, and one of the great functions of the word of God is to keep holding before our eyes his promises that we might be a people of faith and hope that we might not be weighed down by the evidence of our eyes or by the poles that surround us. But that we might keep looking to those promises of God. And the promise of God here is, first of all, that God will save. God will save. As his people long for salvation, save, O oh God, so God says, I will place you in safety. I will preserve you. I will not let the ungodly have the last word or the ultimate triumph. I am God. I am in charge. I will save my people. That's the wonderful blessing of this psalm and of this text. Sometimes, you know, I think people read the psalms and they say, aren't the psalms a little hard on the wicked? And part of the point of the psalms is the wicked are kind of hard on the righteous. 
And we need encouragement. We need the Word of God to bring that encouragement to us. God is a promise keeper. Verse 7. You, O Lord, will keep them. That's not a promise that he will keep the godly. It's a promise that he will keep his word. You will keep your words, Lord. You are the one who, when he speaks, does what he says he'll do. And the function of this psalm is to impress that on us, to encourage us with that truth. God will keep his word. When God says Jesus will come again in glory, he'll come again in glory. Ah, where's the promise of his coming? All things continue as it's been 2,000 years. God will keep his word. God will save his elect. He'll gather them from the four corners of the earth. Look around this room. There are people from the four corners of the earth here. What God has promised to do, he does. And that's what we're being encouraged to see. God keeps his promise even though we may feel very much alone at times. God keeps his promise even though the enemy may seem to gloat over God and his truth. God keeps his word. One of the great joys of the Psalter, as you get to know it, is this honesty with which the psalmist speaks. The psalmist is willing to say, Lord, where is your promise? I'm feeling awfully alone here. Where is your promise? The enemy seems to be triumphing. But the glory of the Psalter is that the psalmist perseveres until the truth triumphs in his heart and in his faith. God will keep his promise. He'll keep it for me. He'll keep it for you. He'll keep it for his people. And he will accomplish his purpose. And this psalm then not only reminds us that he will keep his promise to save his own, but he will keep his promise to judge the wicked. Verse 3, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Now that word cut off is a word that we find often in the law of God about someone who is a rebel against God's covenant being cut off from the people. Leads me to think that this is a psalm ultimately that is not so much concerned that the the ungodly are controlling the world. It's a psalm that reflects on the fact that the ungodly seem to have taken over the church, taken over the people of God. And this is a frustration we face, isn't it, that around the world we see Many, many people who take the name of Christ but don't seem to know him according to his word. In this country especially, it seems that there are many pulpits filled with flatterers who are saying to people, you're just fine. Everything's going well. God loves you just as you are. People who don't tell the truth about the desperate state of sin and the costly remedy for sin that God provided in his own son. And this psalm reminds us that God is a God who will cut off the ungodly from his people. He will purify his people. He is a promise keeper. 
He's a promise keeper when it comes to promises made about salvation, and he's a promise keeper when it comes to promises made about judgment. That's the truth repeated in God's word over and over again. And that word is pure, and that word is true, and we have to cling to it. And then this psalm points us to the foundation of the promise, the foundation of the truth of God's word in reminding us of the the character of our God. He is a God in the first place who hears and who knows. Verse 5, because the poor are plundered, because the greedy, the needy groan. Because the needy groan. God hears us in our need. God hears us in our groaning. And he will satisfy us with the safety for which we long. That's what it says here. God hears us. God knows what's going on. That's sometimes the fear, isn't it? That the world seems to be so spinning out of control, we, we wonder if God is really paying attention. One of the Psalms has one of the most powerful images about that. To do a loose Hebrew translation, we could say the psalmist says to God, take your hands out of your pockets and do something. Part of the reason we need the Psalms is because none of us would dare say that to God without some kind of scriptural warrant. But, but that's the way we feel sometimes. Why is God just standing around in his, with his hands in his pockets when there are things to do and we could tell him what he needs to do? Now, the minute we really articulate that, we see how wrong it is. But the psalmist help us see that that is the way we feel sometimes. But God knows. Psalm 10, verse 14 says, But you see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. Or Psalm 11, verse 4, The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids, eyelids test the children of men. God knows. God sees. God hears. That's the character of our God. It's the foundation of our faith. And God not only knows and sees, but God acts, this scripture says. And there we have this wonderful statement of God in verse 5. I will now arise, says the Lord. I will now arise, says the Lord. God has been sitting on his throne in heaven, is the picture here. And now he arises to act for his people. He arises to answer their prayer that he would save them. And again, this Hebrew verb uh, draws us back to Numbers 10, uh, where we read that Moses declared that whenever the Ark of the Covenant would set out before the people, and whenever the pillar of fire would advance to lead the people through the wilderness, that the people would say as the Ark was lifted up, Rise up, O Lord, may your enemies be scattered, Let those who hate you flee before you. And this psalm is reflecting on that truth, that God rises up to go before his people. God rises up to deliver them from the house of bondage. God rises up to lead them through the Red Sea. God rises up to defeat Pharaoh and his army there. God rises up to bring them to the land of promise. And that's all behind what's being said here, I believe. God will arise. God will rise up 
to lead his people to the promised land, to protect them, to deliver them. He did that under Moses in the wilderness. God rose up to fight with the armies of David. And God in particular, we know, rose up in Jesus Christ to deliver his people from the bondage of sin and to lead them into the land of promise. Jesus Christ rose up, didn't he, from his throne in heaven to empty himself that he might take upon himself the form of a servant, that he might be obedient unto death for his people, that he then might be highly exalted by God. All the scriptures, you see, point forward to Jesus Christ, the pillar of fire, the kingship of David, the armies of Israel, all are pointing forward to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in many ways surprised the world by his war plan, that he would first empty himself, that he would first be the godly one in our place, that then he would be highly exalted, that we might have the assurance that God has arisen for us and will arise for us in Jesus Christ to ensure that we are saved in his great work. You see, this is why it is so important to know God's word, to draw near to God's word, to treasure God's word. Because God has given us a word that is true. He's given us a word full of promises that he'll keep. He's giving us a word that helps us know who he is as our heavenly father for Jesus' sake. Jesus is the truth for us. He is the way for us. He is the life for us. He is God who has arisen for us. And that's what I hope you'll experience in this semester and in this year of study here, drawing closer to that word of God because in it you're growing closer to Jesus Christ as the promise giver and the promise keeper of God for us. And I hope this will be a delightful time, a satisfying time, that you will come to see more deeply and profoundly how the safety for which you have longed as a Christian is provided for you in Jesus Christ, that God has arisen for you in his Son and has provided life and hope and blessedness for you. And as I say, my my prayer is that that will be wonderfully profitable for you as an individual Christian but even more that it will be profitable through you for the church of Jesus Christ. Because the church lives in this welter of lies. This psalm begins with a reference to the liars and the wicked and ends with it. But this psalm, like much Hebrew poetry, has its true meaning at the center. That although this world seems to be bracketed with liars, at the center stands God and his truth and that you will be able to bear testimony to that as you more profoundly grasp and embrace that truth. May God grant that you will have that experience of knowing God better through his word as a result of this year's study. God bless you. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this recording or Westminster Seminary, California, please visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. 
That's online at wscal.edu or call 760-480-8474.